Welcome, and thank you for joining Speak Up for Safer Care. Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of Safer Care Texas, the patient safety division at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas. Our mission is to challenge traditional thinking to eliminate preventable harm. Speak Up for Safer Care illuminates gaps in care, process, or design that lead to preventable harm in all healthcare settings. I'm your host, John Sims, Director of Safer Care Texas, and coming back after two weeks is our co-host, Leanne Cunningham. Afternoon, John. Glad to be back. We are glad to have you back, Leanne. Today's guest is Ray Gonzalez. Ray's background includes 42 years working in or with high-reliability organizations, beginning in the nuclear power industry. His last 28 years focused on improving safety, efficiency, and profitability through enhancing human and organizational performance. Ray is the owner and president of Hope Consulting, LLC, our human and organization, organizational enhancement. Excuse me. Notable accomplishments include Coaching to Enhance Performance, a specialized coaching that received tremendous results in U.S. electrical, chemical, and oil and gas industries, and Trigger Training, a proactive approach to human error reduction. Ray, we are so honored to have you here with us today and to talk to us about um, human performance and how it relates to patient safety. Absolutely. Before we get started, can you explain a few potential harms one might encounter at a nuclear power plant? Well, uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, and I'm really glad to be here uh, with you too. Uh, just a, a little more clarification on my background and where I come from. Sure, sure, please. A and the name HOPE is really an acronym for Human and Organizational Performance Enhancement. I'm that's, glad you said that. I wondered what it stood for. Yeah, Thank you. That's the name of my company. Um, and in the commercial nuclear industry where I started my career for high-risk industry work, um, I started out as a plant operator, an auxiliary operator, and worked my way up to become a control room licensed operator, kind of like you know Homer Simpson in the control room, uh, <laughs> except not. Uh, and I also did some work in what's called work management, uh, where we schedule and, uh, and, and take care of the logistics associated with uh, doing surveillance work and preventative maintenance work and all that, including um, important concepts like lockout, tagout, to ensure that the equipment is ready to be worked on in a safe manner. Mm. Um, I also had some time in quality assurance with, uh, uh, with, within the nuclear industry, and also I, I did some time as a, a plant operations trainer. So I trained operators as well. Uh, but, but I spent my last years as a coordinator or a manager in human performance. And that's where I developed a passion for trying to help us understand how to improve our performance through individual performance and also through organizational resiliency or robustness. Mm. So that's kind of a little bit about that. Um, Impressive resume, by the way. <laughs> thank you. The, the thing about commercial nuclear power, just to kind of clarify what that really is, mm. is some people see it kind of mysterious. Uh, and what it's designed for is to generate electricity. So as opposed to a coal-fired plant or a gas plant, the commercial nuclear industry uses nuclear fuel as the heat source. So that nuclear fuel is used to heat up water to the boiling point, creates steam. The steam, in turn, will, be, will flow through large turbines, 
and those turbines will then turn a very large electrical generator and put bunch of megawatts out on the Texas grid, electrical grid. This is what's supplying reliable and sustainable power up here in North Texas. It's generated energy. Exactly. Amazing. A, a lot of that. So uh, as opposed to last year, you remember we had some brownouts and stuff because there's not enough resiliency in today's Texas uh, grid. And we did notice some yeah. things about the Texas grid last year. <laughs> yeah. That was a big highlight from last it didn't year. It didn't sustain our energy. That's right. I had no electricity. I remember those days. So you can understand understand then where, you know, commercial nuclear power and providing electrical generation is so important uh, because we rely so heavily on electricity that when it's missing, we really know it's missing. Right. So um, just wanted to mention a couple things about that, plus uh, talk a little bit more about the nuclear fuel that's used in commercial nuclear power plants to generate electricity. The fuel itself is of a very low concentration, somewhere around 2 to 3 percent of uranium that's used, as opposed to weapons-grade uh, nuclear, which is over 90 percent. So in terms of hazards at the nuclear plant, you won't see a weapons type of hazard at a nuclear power plant. Uh, however, there's still a tremendous amount of power associated with nuclear fuel, even at 2 to 3 percent. That generates a tremendous amount of heat source, right? So some of the more um, – so because of that and the amount of power, it is a paramount responsibility and a core value for all operators of a commercial nuclear facility. Okay, in other words, what I'm saying is, is the owners and the actual operators have a core value for public safety. It is what they focus on. Not just public safety, but personnel safety and environmental safety. Those are the core values that are inherent uh, in commercial nuclear power. So, um, so let's talk about what kind of uh, harm can, can occur at a commercial nuclear plant. Well, um, radiological overexposure kind of similar to if you gave too large a dose of an x-ray, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. in the medical industry. Or if you overdosed in using nuclear medicine, you would cause overexposure to radiological material, right? Or contamination, which is radiological material in unwanted places. That Those are a couple of places that could cause potential harm. Mm -hmm. However, most of the potential harm within a commercial nuclear power plant is because it's in an industrial setting, so in an industrial setting, people who work outside offices have to wear hard hats, safety glasses, steel-toe shoes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, wear gloves as appropriate, hearing protection for the loud noises, right? And, and protect themselves against high heats, um, electrical shock, uh, potentials, things, things of that nature, which is more um, uh, occupational safety, industrial safety-related Incidences. That's in healthcare, we call that PPE or personal protective equipment. Same I thing. Was, yeah. I was just thinking in my mind how we went through many instances in the last few years where they actually correlate, even though it's not a clinically based perspective. It is. It is uh, again a nuclear power plant and industrial. So it's it's interesting to hear the the way they actually um, coincide. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what we call it: PPE. <laughs> so, so you're going to find that there's a lot of terms that we have in common and some terms that are a little different, but they mean the same thing. And I'm going to talk about that probably as we go. Awesome. Wow. Awesome. 
So can you please describe some error precursors and provide some examples for us? Absolutely. So I was listening to the January 12th podcast with Jessica. Oh, yes. And it was a great podcast. And so um, there was a story that was shared. And maybe, John, you could kind of give us a recap on that about sharing um, a password that resulted in an error. Sure. Yeah. So um, the the little impromptu skit that we went through was somebody had shared their password to the um, – I'm going to call it the the PIXIS, which is where we get controlled medications. There's a code that you have to put in there. And somebody had shared that with somebody else and a medication error occurred by the person who was using somebody else's password. Mm-hmm. And that did not um, – That was never discussed until the medication error occurred, and the reason that 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 even happened in the first place was because of work pressure and pace. There was a physician that was really, you know, chomping on everybody, hey, we need to get the next one in here, we need to get the next one in here, so it was a workaround. Mm -hmm. And that would not have been discovered to look at the root cause of why that medication error occurred and why people were sharing passwords had there not been a mistake. And we really want to um, to get around that. We want people to feel more uh, empowered to to share authentically, hey, this, this is a potential problem or this is an actual problem. Exactly. So you mentioned work, pressure, and pace. Yes, sir. Okay, so there's where we're going to start talking about error precursors. So error precursors are sometimes called error traps. They're also called local factors. And some of those, and the top, uh, the, you know, some of the top ten. I'll just mention a few. Are things like uh, time pressure, high workload, a change in the plan, or maybe simultaneous or multiple tasks being mm. performed. Right. So, do any of those relate to healthcare? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you can see that in healthcare, you have the same types of error precursors, if you will, those local factors that can drive behavior. Okay, Uh, and and the important thing to think about when it comes to that is going back to the to what we know already is that humans are fallible. Right. And we make mistakes. So the studies show that we make anywhere between three to seven errors an hour. It just depends on just depends on what study you read. Right. Uh, And it doesn't seem like we make that many. Uh, But the reason that it doesn't is because most of them are inconsequential. Let me give you an example. We leave the house and we're headed down the road. We get a a block away and we notice we forgot our lunch or we forgot our ID badge. Right. So we turn around, go back. It only takes us a few more minutes. It was an error, but it was inconsequential. We're able to recover from that. Mm -hmm. However, when it comes to error precursors, error traps, local factors, right? These are all the same type of things. Um, What they can do to us is increase our error rate anywhere between two to 50 times. So when you're under time pressure or a high workload, your error rate goes up and you're already starting at three to seven an hour. So if you can kind of think about that under that pressure or that stress, it's causing us to increase our error rates. All right, so those are that's a kind of a general description of error precursors, but uh, here's the good news. The good news is is that all error precursors are manageable. Hmm. We have to think about that. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. When it comes to time pressure, what would you think would be a good way to 
manage time pressure. When I first started here, we had a COVID testing site and we had a lot of people right at the onset of the pandemic that we had to get through and test. Mm -hmm. And what I always said was slow down. Right. Slow down. Right, right. So reinforcing the expectations to take our time to ensure things are done well with quality right, will ensure that. So certainly we can always remind us that, uh, remind people of that. I would say that the number one way to manage time pressure is to plan and prepare. I was fixing to say, set a timeline. Exactly. Be prepared. Exactly, exactly. We have that conversation quite often in our department. Right. Just it right. prevents error. Right. It, it gives you that opportunity, right, to examine things before they happen so that if you do start to feel the time pressure, if you stick to the plan or what was prepared, you will make it through with minimizing the amount of errors that could occur. That sounds eerily similar to the high reliability organization principle um, um, preoccupation with failure. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that's pretty much what I wanted to kind of help hopefully uh, help you understand what error precursors were. I, I actually handed you a short list of, of 40, but there's more. You did. Yeah. And, I'm, and in looking in the list, I'm sitting, it, it, it is amazing to see the, the precursors listed align with just everyday work-related precursors. Yep, absolutely. And if anybody's interested in knowing what they are, just Google it. Google sure. error precursors, and you'll see a list of a short list of 40, or maybe possibly more. Uh, it gives us a great way to understand those. So, uh, so when we were talking about managing error precursors, um, this is what I describe as a two-pronged approach. So there's two ways to always look at minimizing errors that can lead to undesirable events, right? Uh, one is obviously the responsibility of the individual worker to do everything they can uh, to understand those little human performance tools and techniques that we have, such as timeouts, um, uh, huddles, um, briefs, briefs, debriefs, mm -hmm. debriefs, right? Those type of things and know when and where to apply them correctly. Also, more, more importantly, second checks, right? Verification practices. Those are human performance tools and techniques. So it's incumbent upon us as individual workers to do all we can to learn about them, know them well, and know exactly when they need to be applied, okay? Um, another one is another uh, human performance tool or technique is stop the line. We're going to talk about that soon. In other industries, it's called stop work authority, right? And we need to know when exactly we need to apply that. So that's one prong is the individual performer is doing the best they can to minimize errors, okay? You'll never have zero errors all the time. You will have errors, but we want to minimize the number of errors that occur. Okay, so the other part, the second prong, is on the managerial side. It is incumbent upon managers and the people that manage the organization to do what we just said a moment ago and manage things like time pressure, set the expectations for ensuring that we take our time, that the pace is, is a good pace, and that we do the pre-planning or we do the planning and stick to that plan so that we can ensure that we don't don't come um, are not affected, if you will, by time pressure. So here's the tricky thing about time pressure: whether it's perceived or real, it has the same effect. Absolutely. Okay. So um, so it's a two pronged approach. We're going to probably talk a little bit more about the two pronged approach. Um, you know, here 
shortly some more uh, because it's so relatable to what we have to think about in terms of combating or minimizing errors as they go. So, Ray, you would, you would, you mentioned um, uh, sometimes we stop the line or you said stop the work authority, I think mm -hmm. is, stop is work how authority. you termed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and actually that is the title of today's episode, Why Stopping the Line May Not Work. And so we know that patient safety officers they, they will stop the line if the conditions are unsafe and a potential error or harm is likely to occur. They will stop the line and prevent that from happening before they let the line go. I, I use the example of the COVID testing sites. We had to stop the line sometimes if maybe somebody came through our, our – um, our highly controlled or our hot zone where we were doing the testing mm -hmm. If somebody came through there that mm -hmm. wasn't supposed to be there. Well, mm -hmm. we had to stop the line, mm -hmm. make sure that that person and everybody else was safe. Um, so tell me a little bit more about why stopping the line may not work. Well, first of all, you mentioned patient safety officers being able to do that. But isn't it the responsibility of anyone in healthcare Absolutely. to stop the line? It's everybody's responsibility. Everybody's responsibility. And again, this goes back to understanding when human performance tools and techniques should be used at the appropriate time. So, you know, stop the line or, or what, what's termed stop work authority in other industries is another technique that has to be used at critical junctions in the work activity. And what I mean by that is um, there are critical steps that occur that could occur in any task. And critical steps are defined as those steps that if done improperly or um, will have an immediate, intolerable and irreversible harm. Wow. Critical steps. So we need to get better and better at understanding not only critical steps, but those few steps that precede it that are risk important actions and ensure that they are done correctly. So there's also, you know, I, I, I actually mentioned a book to you uh, that is written on critical steps. Mm -hmm. um, the authors are Tony Mashera, Ron Ferris, and Jim Marinas. Uh, and Tony was actually the first one to write a book on risk-based thinking where he had a chapter in there on critical steps. And then the three of them combined to write a book that's a little more practical for application on what does critical steps mean. So the reason I bring that up is because it is another tool to ensure that, uh, because I mentioned earlier, you can't stop errors all the time, right. always. I, I use my hands a lot. Um, Me too. But, but um, you can prevent errors at those critical junctions, at those critical steps with the right amount of preparation. Okay. So I, I mentioned that because it's important uh, for us to think about that. Now let's talk a little bit more about why stop the line or why stop work authority in other industries sometimes doesn't work. Mm. And there's, there are several reasons why. Um, but, but we as humans have a tendency to proceed in the face of uncertainty. And uh, there's various reasons for that. One is um, humans, as humans, we come to work wanting to do a good job, mm -hmm. right? Um, can we agree on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We come to work wanting to do a good job. We take pride in our work. We want to provide quality care. Uh, we want to get the job done. So it's not inherent in us to want to stop work or um, – you know, we or slow things down, if you will. We want to proceed if we can. Um, so that's one of the things that drives us into proceeding in the face of uncertainty. Um, but there's 
when it comes to uncertainty, we have to think about a few different things. The big thing is for me is a question that I was once asked. I, I was teaching a, a class on using a human performance technique or tool called stop when uncertain. Hmm. And an engineer stepped up and said, hey, how do I stop when uncertain if I don't know I'm uncertain? Hmm. I was fixing to ask that question because you're basically saying you got to stop. Now I'm using my hands. I'm sorry. Um, you've, got, you've got to stop in order to reevaluate. So how did you answer his question? Well, at, at that time when he asked me, I didn't have an answer, oh, wow. to be quite honest with you. I was like, I was taken aback saying, you know what, that is a very good question. But later I found that answer. Um, so I'm going to make a long and short story here, uh, a long story short. The, the answer is there are visible cues that typically precede an undesirable event. And I found out what those were, what they look like. I categorized them and I developed something called trigger training. You mentioned mm -hmm. it's very proactive. Um, and that helps us understand that in fact, what we just, what we see right here, staring us right in the face, this visible cue is telling us we're standing in the space of uncertainty and it's time to stop. So it gives us a level of confidence that we are stopping appropriately, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, another reason why we proceed in the face of uncertainty um, is because um, we, we lack confidence. We lack confidence. It's either due to um, our experience, we could be new in the profession, or it's due to a lack of training where we've never been trained to, to know exactly does this meet the criteria of stopping the line or does it not? Right. Um, so it may be something really as simple as just having an introverted personality where people don't normally speak up anyhow. But I'm not going to throw the introverts under the bus here. I'm going to tell you that a lot of introverts will stop the line, OK, mm -hmm. as they see things that are wrong or risky. However, some may not. OK, so uh, uh, another reason why people proceed in the face of uncertainty is, you know, they don't really want to stand out. They don't want to be that guy or that gal who is looked at like slowing things down or maybe they're bucking the system or maybe they're just now being looked at as a troublemaker of some sort. Right? Peer pressure. It's peer pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also fear of failure. Right. Absolutely. It, it, it's Absolutely. a very big fear of failure. Nobody – I don't want to slow down the system in order to say, hey, maybe we were wrong or maybe we've caught something that was wrong. So I, I, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. And it stopping the line – when you see something wrong or risky is so important. So I'm glad we're kind of talking about this. Me too. But, but there's reasons why we don't, why we naturally as humans tend to proceed in the face of uncertainty. So I'm going to give you a list of several other things that can drive us into proceeding. And we're only going to talk about a few, okay? Okay. But here's the list. You ever heard of the halo effect? I have. They talk about it in project management. Okay, we'll talk. We'll come. We'll come back to that. Sure. The halo I've effect. Heard about that. That's one. We mentioned peer pressure. That's mm -hmm. another. Uh, schedule or time pressure, which we've talked about, right? Um, how about sign or label blindness? That's another one. There's something called habituation, the Pollyanna principle, rationalization, and risk perception. All of those are reasons that drive us into proceeding in the face of uncertainty. So let's talk first about the halo effect, okay? The halo effect is viewing someone in authority who can do no wrong. So in healthcare, who would that be? Well, it's not me. <laughs> who could that be in healthcare? 
Someone in authority who could do no wrong. I would think if you I would say um, a provider, a physician. I was say, yeah, a physician, yeah. a yeah. clinician. Yeah, typically. And that's and and I'll tell you, as a consumer of healthcare myself, mm-hmm. that certainly was my mindset years many years ago. I mean, I trust my doctor and I feel like my doctor knows what they're doing. And I put a lot of confidence and trust in that doctor. Um, thinking that they've been trained well so they could do no wrong. But doctors are humans. They are also fallible, okay? Even the best make mistakes. So uh, the halo effect can, can drive us into proceeding in the face of uncertainty where we don't question. Uh, we don't push back. We don't ask for a second opinion. We don't, uh, we don't ask the doctor specific questions. And I got to tell you, you know, after, after reading the To Air is Human report that came out in the 90s, Um, And other reports that have come out since recognizing the number of sentinel events that have occurred in healthcare as a result of error and other issues that Mm -hmm. occur, um, I changed my whole way of thinking. So every time my family or myself goes in to have any surgery or any type of procedure done that could be risky, um, we have a huddle before we do that that surgery. Great strategy. Yeah. I want to talk to the physician, the head nurse, and the anesthesiologist at a minimum if they're going to go in and work on me or my family. And and the first question I ask is not to the physician, but it's to the head nurse and then the anesthesiologist. And I ask them, are you willing to stop if you see something that you've never seen before or that you might think is different than what you've seen or something that you believe might be wrong or risky? And that's my first question. How was that received? Well, the first time, <laughs> the first time I did that, the head nurse looked at me as if I had two heads. <laughs> you know? and, and, then she, and then she turned around and she kind of slapped the little table that was next to her. And she says, I have no problem doing that. I just learned a new technique, and she spouted off some acronym I had never heard before, and she said it gives me the right and the responsibility to stop if I see something wrong. And I said, that's great. To me, in the back of my mind, I was ding, ding, ding. This is the right answer, right? I was just thinking. And then I asked the anesthesiology, yep, I've gone through the same training. I have no problem. So then I turned to the physician, and I said, doctor, thank you so much for having this type of culture within your operating room. Because obviously it couldn't work unless that physician was supportive of it. And the bottom line was, he said, it's all about the patient. The patient happened to be my 12-year-old son Mm. who is having pectus escavatum surgery, Mm. the very invasive type, uh, the open chest type. So it was very important for me to ensure the safety of my 12-year-old, right? For, for our, our listeners out there, uh, that pectus es- escavatum, escavatum that's, that's where your, uh, your chest is inverted. Have you ever seen anybody where it looks like they've got a big, um, not a hole in their chest. A dent. But, but, but a big old dent. That's, that's the kind of surgery yeah. he's talking about. Yeah, it's often referred to as sunken chest. And uh, actually, the studies say that one out of six children or have that effect. Mm-hmm. So that was important to me. But every surgery since then for my family has been very important to me. There's always risk. And I've always asked the same questions and I've always gotten good answers. That gives me a lot of hope, no pun intended. It gives me a lot, a lot of hope about our future of healthcare. We could talk more about that here uh, later. Um, But we did talk about several different things that could drive us. Is there any other particular one that you were interested in that I I listed? I listed uh, various things like uh, 
we talked about peer pressure, so that might be pretty easy to understand. I mentioned sign and label blindness and uh, rationalization. I thought about your rationalization just based on the halo effect because mm-hmm. we find ourselves thinking as as we're talking to that physician that they do no wrong. They have the answers. And then we rationalize in our mind, even though there might be a doubt, why we don't go for that second opinion, why we don't ask the team, why we don't carry forward with protecting as you did or advocating for your children. So I I see how they correlate and tie together. I didn't realize it until we started this conversation, how many excuses we seem to have in, in making decisions or the fear of failure in making the decision. You know, we have a tendency to rationalize a lot of things, and sometimes it happens in a millisecond. I mean, sometimes it just processes in our brain very quickly. Um, But rationalization, I always say, is the number one killer of a questioning attitude. Your questioning attitude is a very uh, uh, internal uh, thing that you cannot stop. I mean, the moment you're conscious in the day, whether you're working day shift or night shift, when you wake up, the moment you wake up, you're asking yourself questions about, you know, like, can I snooze? Uh, do I have to go into work today? Uh, is that coffee I smell? You know, so, I mean, you're asking yourself questions, right? I mean, just, I mean, it never stops. It's relentless. So your question attitude never stops. But when you're, but in important times, when you see something that kind of is different than what you expect, your questions are firing off left and right. And we have a tendency at times to rationalize. Well, you know, that syringe was in the bin that was labeled for it, so it must be right. I mean, I'm oh, kind of wow. new here, but but they, they've stored this stuff, so it must be the right syringe. Because our mind wants to meet the expectation. Exactly. Exactly. If that, as a practical example. Sure. And so um, – you know, you, uh, we, were, we were talking about that first podcast with Jessica, and one of the terms that I didn't hear here, it may be on the list, mm-hmm. uh, but we mentioned there was normalized deviance. Right, right. And um, I, that has to come into play, certainly does in healthcare, because, you know, even though I'm not following this policy for this procedure, mm-hmm. nothing bad happens. Right. So then you adopt it into your normal everyday flow. Right, right. And that's kind of like habituation in mm-hmm. that you become exposed to a stimuli over time and you don't see a negative effect from it. The outcomes are typically positive, so you begin to adapt. Another way to look at the normalization of deviance is called drift. Drift is work as imagined, which is the standards and expectations we have to hold high and uncompromising every day for good patient safety. And then work as performed, which is a lower line below that, where this is describing work that's actually done. So we can put together all kinds of policies and procedures and protocol and expectations that you will work this way for high patient safety. But in the real world, work that's work is imagined. But in the real r- world, it's called work is done. And, that's, and work is done is typically lower than the standards because of what we just described. You get um, – say you are under time pressure or you have a high workload. And so you take a shortcut. Um, you're, you're, you're doing it to be efficient. You're not doing it out of uh, – malfeasance. You're, you're doing it because you want to optimize your work. Again, we come to work wanting to do a good job. So we take that little shortcut. Nothing bad happens. So we've lowered the line of expectation, right? And so that's drift. Right. This is a very impactful discussion that we're having, and we haven't covered everything. So, But we're, we're about out of time. So what I'd like to do 
is we're going to do a part two. Awesome. Because I think <laughs> I think that this is something that everybody needs to hear. So, listeners, um, we're, we're going to stop the segment now, and we're going to pick up next week for part two. That sounds great. I'll yeah. be here. <laughs> well, I hope so. Otherwise, it's going to be a very critically short conversation. I just want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We want to encourage you to speak up for Safer Care. It's a product of Safer Care Texas. Again, we are the Patient Safety Division at the University of North Texas Health Science Center here in Fort Worth. And we'd like to thank our our technical producer, Rob Upchurch. We also encourage you, our listeners, to speak up. Please become an advocate for yourself, your family, and your colleagues. If you're a healthcare worker, a counselor, or a subject matter expert, a former patient, or a caregiver, and you have a patient story that you'd like to share, we encourage you to contact us. We do need to remind you that all stories must be HIPAA compliant, and we at Safer Care Texas do want to hear from you. So come, please, be our guest. Contact us through our website at safercaretexas.org, or also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. LinkedIn at Safer Care Texas is also an option. Tune in next week as we talk again with Ray and continue on part two of our podcast on um, why stopping the line might not work. Thank you again for joining us and have a great afternoon.